To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have back on Guy Eastman. Um, man, Guy is just really fun to hang out with and really fun to talk to. He's been immersed in the Western hunting culture for his entire life. And, and, and he knows and has learned so much through, you know, his circle of friends and acquaintances, you know, through his grandfather and his dad. And, and then he's such an accomplished hunter himself. Uh, both with deer and elk across nearly every western state. He's so tapped into it. And so I just love sitting down and talking with the guy. And and and, and that includes, you know, not only hunting, but I love talking fishing with him. The guy is nuts for fishing for, for big brown trout. He loves pulling streamers. He knows every river in the west. So he's just interesting to talk to. And so, you know, I just hit record on this. We started our conversation. We start talking about, you know, his Africa trip. And then what I really wanted to get into this episode, and I think we accomplished it, is I just wanted to get in how to find the biggest bucks and the biggest bulls, like how to dissect your unit and, and really hunt it as effectively and as efficiently as you can. So I tried to tap into a lot of guys tricks and tactics and secrets he uses to break down units to find those big, big critters. So um, I really enjoy it. I know you guys are going to enjoy it too. Sponsor for today's show is Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, Sportsman's Warehouse is great. It's so nice to have an outdoor store where you can go and you can try on different things. You can see the fit because every different brand has a different fit and, and a different size for that matter or boots. Like I'll run um, – you know, I'll run a nine and a half in some boots and a nine in other boots. And so it's just nice to be able to go in there and, and try it on. And also, you know, with glass spotting scopes, binoculars, rifle scopes, to be able to look through them and look at your clarity and the way it lays out and not just ordering it off the Internet. They also have a full staff in each department from guns to bows to to clothing. They've got, you know, all your 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 outdoor meals. Uh, Pretty much everything you need for your hunt or anything you need for your hunt, they have it at Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, they always have a knowledgeable staff. And, um, yeah, i I just really happy and want to thank them for their support. And anything I ever need on a hunt, before a hunt, I'm going in there. The other day, I ran in there. Oh, my, my rest was making a little noise as I was drawing back my arrows. And my arrows had just worn out the felt on my rest there. And so it was making a little squeak. Um, so I went into Sportsman's Warehouse. Sure enough, they had some felt for me with uh, uh, sticky tape on the back, put it on my rest, and I'm ready to go for season. So just anything like that you need as you're going to a hunt, before a hunt, Sportsman's Warehouse has got your back. Uh, thanks to those guys for sponsoring the podcast. And with that, over there at Eastman's, um, we've got those good Beyond the Grids coming up. Uh, I'm going to reach out, see when those are, are coming out. I'll make sure on the next podcast that I let you know the, the new episodes because we got some great ones coming up. And um, saw Dan Picard harvested a really good bull the other day. So he's been on fire. I'm sure he's grabbing some great footage. Um, man, I've had some awesome hunts here. This has just been an amazing September. 
uh, I have had so much fun um, really pushing myself and hunting hard and and uh, like I always say, um, you know, persistence and, and patience are the two keys to, to being successful. And it has been trying this year, guys. Like, I can't wait to get into it with you guys. I'm going to do I'm going to release that solo podcast. I'll put it together after this one, the highs and lows of mule deer that kind of go through my mule deer season. And uh, now I'm just in the heart of elk season and having an absolute riot. Um Man, I I just uh, I love being out. I love being able to chase them. Love having the time right now and and having everything. So it, I've been missing a little bit from social media. Uh, I'm gonna come back to it. Uh, it's been great to get a break. Um, and, and I've had some really good podcasts that I pre-recorded, able to release to you guys. Just so nice to um, be able to cut these legs loose and get to the mountain. So um, I'm having an absolute blast and can't wait to share my season with you guys. So. Um, but let's get into this. This is a great conversation with one of the most knowledgeable guys uh, in the West, uh, Guy Eastman. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Hey, good morning, Guy. Hey, how's it going, Brian? Good. Made it into the office, huh? Yeah, fine. <laughs> How's it going there? Yeah, good. Sounds like you got some carpentry going on in there. Oh, people making coffee. I shut my door. Okay, gotcha. Um, Yeah, good. It looked like you had a good trip to Africa, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Man, um, did you go over there with your wife? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and my, my parents took their grandkids over there, so I went and helped out with that. Oh, okay. Mm hmm. Um, thing there were six of us oh wow you guys had a big group mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gosh some of those animals were just beautiful god i love those kudu those spiral horns those things are sure neat looking yeah they're pretty they're pretty cool they're uh you know one of the prettier antelope in africa for sure gosh, uh, just such a, a diversity of animals over there it's got to be fun to focus on those different animals and I really think like that place, um, it's meant to be hunted with a rifle, isn't it? Where you can stalk through the bush and you're not sitting on a water hole or something like that. It just looks like a fun way to do it. It's very, yeah, it's very similar to antelope hunting here in Wyoming or, you know, in the West, Wyoming or Montana. I mean, you can do it spot and stalk, but it's really tough and you can't be selective with a bow, <clears throat> you know, with a rifle. It's, it's a spot and stalk you know, extravaganza with a gun, but to really get nice animals with a bow, you pretty much have to sit over water. Yeah, that's what it seems like for sure. That's why it'd be fun to take a rifle over there and spot and stalk through some of those critters. And then um, it looks like the degree of difficulty on the shots too can can be a little tricky because you can't get down into a prone rest. That grass seems so tall. Yeah, the brush is real thick. It's their winter over there, so there's not a lot of grass right now, but the brush is is pretty thick. And, you know, they get in herds, especially in the winter, and it's a real bad drought over there. So the hunting was actually really easy. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. If that's ever happened, but. (laughs) You guys timed it right. Yeah, we timed it right. So they they were wanting to get rid of a lot of animals, you know, in the whole country because their drought, they're having 138 year old drought there, or year droughts. They haven't had one 
that bad in over a hundred years. So it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Oh my gosh, that's serious stuff there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes uh, you know, the 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 drought we went through seem like nothing when it's a hundred year drought like that. Yeah, yeah. So they're pretty panicked, and there's not much for their cows to eat. So everybody's selling their cattle off, and it's it's pretty tough situation. But the hunting was really good because everything's out, you know, trying to survive. But it's crazy just the amount of animals hoofs on the hooves on the ground there is just mind boggling. Really? Um, so the, the feed and the it, – it'll support that many critters out there, huh? Yeah, that brush must have incredible amount of protein. Well, we drove through areas that were just sand. You know, most of it was just sand. And I'm like, what do these things eat? And, and they were telling me on a, in, when the rains come, the grass, you can't even see the fences. The grass gets so high, but – Obviously, it's just dirt now, dirt and sand and rock, but it's just really a feast or famine kind of place. I mean, we our animals would be dead in a week if we put them over there. <laughs> of course, if they put theirs over here, our, they'd be dead in a week. You know, I mean, it gets to near freezing, and they act like they're going to die. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they like that warm weather, huh? Their hides are just, they're just uh, evolved that way, right? To live in that yeah. climate and that habitat. And in over thousands of years, they just adjust to where they live at. And uh, so they're suited for it. Yeah, their skin is so thin. You know, it's almost transparent when you, when you skin them. It's just, there's not much there. It's unlike our animals, you know. Huh, and that's made to, to keep them cool, I'm sure, right? Yeah. 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 Desert sheep are that way. You know, when you skin them, their hide is real thin. Okay. It must be something to it, but I think it when they drink water, I know desert sheep, when they drink water, it holds, they hold that water between their skin and their muscle. They can hold like, I don't know, ram can hold some crazy thing like almost six gallons of water, like a water jacket around himself. <laughs> really? That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, so they'll drink, literally fill up with water and go lay down up in the hills and the rocks in the shade for like a day waiting for while all that water just works its way into their muscle and fat, you know, underneath their skin. And then they go and they can go for, you know, almost a week before they need to water again. And by the time they need to water again, they're shrunk up. <laughs> You know, all gant. You can just tell physically tell if they've watered or not by how fat they are. Their look. Man, that is so wild. I've never heard that. So you, those desert yeah. animals, they have to adapt. Like I, I always wondered how they'd survive. You know, a lot of places where you see desert sheep or or even mule deer, some different species where there is no water around. It's like, how do they survive out there? But that makes sense. So those those sheep drink about once a week. Um, and, and then they store it in their bodies and they're able to survive that, that next week. But I like what you say too, like they, they drink that water and, uh, it takes them a whole day to, to have that water set in place where then they can act normal again. Yeah. I mean, when they walk away from the water hole, they're just like sloshing, you know, like water in a bucket and then they go, yeah, it takes them, takes them a, a while for it, all that to water to absorb into their, their tissues. It's kind of crazy, but I think a lot of African animals are the same way. 
you know, the, those gems buck, they, they say they don't even need to water. They get enough water just from the feed. They're really desert animals. And I think that's why they, in New Mexico, they have them out there on that white sands and whatever. Oh, that's right. There's no water. It's like the only animal that'll that's able to survive out there. Like even desert sheep can't. It's an antelope can't, nothing can, but they can. It's crazy. It's it's um these animals they almost specialize in these different habitats and that's how they thrive and like you you know like you go up top but like sheep and goats can live you know higher on the mountain than any other animal it seems like they just live off that real short mountain grass or uh you know live off the the, the moss on the rocks or they can just live off so little feed so little water but it's wild how all these animals evolved to specialize in that habitat and and just like you say that white sand it's the only animal that can survive out there yeah 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 and i think what happens in africa a lot of those animals eat the trees and the brush really eat the trees in the brush you know the giraffes and the elephants can really eat the trees the big trees and we don't really have that here i mean nothing eats our trees so our habitats are really underutilized compared to theirs because <laughs> their animals can eat everything everything so it's pretty crazy huh that is crazy well we're setting up to have a pretty good year out west for deer and elk um gosh we've had good moisture this summer yeah all across the west right the south is out of the drought i mean the the southern states look really good for antler growth uh if if somebody was lucky enough to get a tag in the nevada the the utah new mexico arizona boy they're gonna have a good season yeah, they killed a 300-inch deer in Arizona the other day I saw. So, wow. I, wow, like a governor tag down there? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And they they only kill a 300-incher down on that strip if the conditions are just right. You know, I mean, it has to be just perfect for that. It's been a decade since they've killed one, I think. So, That's a good sign. Yep, here we go. Yep. Um, yeah, we're going to have a bunch of big critters hit the pages of the, the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal and Eastman's Hunting Journal this year. I can't wait to see what guys are turning up. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah, that makes good sense. Um, it it gives you such a lay of the land, doesn't it, that, that overview mm-hmm. or getting above it. Um, you can just see everything from that view. It's way different than glassing up with your spotting scope looking at one feature up there. Yeah, and topo, topo maps are good, but they can be really deceptive in a lot of regards, If you, especially if you don't know how to really read them, and I'm not, I do not claim to be an expert at that by any means. And Google Earth with satellite imagery, it can be deceptive as well because it doesn't really do the topography justice or the distances. I mean, you can get on Google Earth and think, oh, I'll just hike up that in a few hours, and, and two days later, you're still struggling to summit that thing. <laughs> or, or that looks pretty sparsely timbered, and when you get there in person, it is just dog hair thick. You know, it just doesn't, it's really hard to get a real good idea from a satellite image, especially depending on when they actually took the picture. It is. It's a it's a tool that we use, but um, it, it isn't the end all be all. And you're right. The I can't tell you how many times I've made that mistake. Is the country always looks smaller on Google Earth or on topo maps? And I think I'm gonna run all over it. And um, just like you stated, two days later, I haven't even made it to the first ridge in there. And, and it's tough to tell thickness of cover, like you're saying. E- even uh, open meadows, and it it's tough to see. 
you know, how it's going to lay out to you as well. And so, yeah, boots to ground and seeing it in real person, uh, such a benefit, so advantageous for us hunters. Yeah, and I think one thing is uh, I've gotten tripped up on Google Earth before, too, is the shadowing. Depending when they took that photo, the shadowing on the basins and meadows and avalanche shoots and stuff can be really deceiving on there, and it looks a lot different in person. <laughs> well, well, in time of year too, and you can change the image to look at different times of the year. But the, you know, those older images they don't have the quality that the newer images have. So, like right now, when you guys are flying it, you're flying it at the perfect time. You know, where the mountains are still green, the meadows are still green. You can differentiate. You know, what's a feeding feature. You know, and and what's a a burned off slope? You know that they're not going to feed on. So, um, yeah, it, it's just t- it, you got to use all the different resources to be able to to figure out a unit. So that's kind of why I wanted to get you on the podcast today, or it is the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast today is just finding those those next level critters, those um, you know, those big bulls and those big bucks just how you go about it. And so you know, we've already started with you, you know, looking at the unit, and with elk. It, it seems like you have to get – like your first step is to get a good feeling for the unit, the mountain ranges, the drainages, just a big over, overview. Is that how you start when you have a tag? Yeah. I'm kind of, usually I you know start big, as wide a focus as I can get and just start narrowing things down. You know, I mean I'm looking at the whole unit front to back, top to bottom, and trying to uh, – you know, to see where I want to focus my efforts come hunting season. And that can, you know, I'm doing it from the ground and the computer, you know, the computer initially and maps. And then, then I do a little on the ground. I mean, scouting is kind of a, that's a tool a lot of people use. I've used it as well, but you don't always have time for that. Or sometimes you draw an area that's a long ways away and you just don't have the luxury of doing that in person ahead of time. And that can make it difficult, but you know, you just really have to use every tool you can get a hold of, even if it's word of mouth or a buddy or, or whatever, a game warden or a biologist, and start narrowing that that focus down and trying to learn that unit. I mean, one you never I don't think you ever fully learn a unit. I've been with buddies who are outfitting in country for twenty years, two decades, and they find stuff each year that they've never knew was there or existed, you know, by chasing a bugling bull into a hole or a pocket they didn't didn't know was there didn't know how to get to it you know so it's you never i don't think you ever really fully understand a unit 100 percent i think you're right um yeah there's just so much square footage or square miles in there that you you can't you can't inspect every little piece of country you're just looking for good pieces of country so it sounds like you you start off looking at the entire unit do you look for um unpressured places away from roads away from trails or are you looking for good elk features or kind of all of the above you know, I think that's a good question, Brian. I think I, you know, just kind of going through my head right here quick is some of the areas I've hunted lately. And I think it, you know, I think it depends. I think, you know, it, that's why it's important when you get that MRS section. I don't hate to beat on the MRS too much, but, you know, beat my drum on that. But when you get in that research mode, 
man, I'll tell you one of the things I always look at when I'm applying and I darn sure look at after the draw, because you don't always know until after the draw is, is that tag quota. I want to know what I'm competing with. Okay. If I'm, if it's a heavy tag quota area where there's a lot of tags in there, like region G and H in Wyoming, for instance, man, your best bet is to find places where people are not, you know, so you're going for the unpressured areas, people, places are tough for people to get into or too far for people to get into or too rough or un, you know, just, uh, overlooked areas, things like that. Um, but in the case where my wife's tag, for instance, there's only 30 elk tags in there and it's a two month long season. So I'm not worried about the hunting pressure, even on the opening weekend, it's not going to be even a 10th of what a general unit would be. So for that, when I'm in those situations, I'm looking at habitat and the necessities. I'm looking for feed, water, cover, you know, where are those animals going to be? Because in an unpressured area, those animals are going to gravitate to the juiciest spots in the unit. That means the best feed, the best cover, the good water, the nice north facing slopes to bed in, the nice, you know, grassy meadows or avalanche chutes or rock slide, you know, benches, that kind of stuff. Um, but if you're in a high pressured area, you better, better, you're better off to look for, for where the people are not. Uh, I really like that, how your strategy is specific to the tag and the unit you draw. That's so important that you can't take the same strategy for a high-pressure unit that you can a low-pressure unit. Your strategy has to adapt and change. I really like that, Guy. Yeah, and you know, and I think you can also throw the wild card of season dates in there. That's a big factor, the seasonality of the dates. You know, when I'm applying, I'm always looking at those season dates, and I want to double check them once I get that tag and I say, okay, am I setting up here for a December deer hunt or is this a September deer hunt? Those are not the same hunts. Deer, the bucks are not going to be in the same places, you know. So, so you really got to factor in the time of year as well. And I'll tell you, it, this is a, this is, this is a world that's being opened on the bow hunters now as well, because for years and years, decades and decades, I'm one of them as well. Bow hunters didn't have to worry as much about this stuff, but in today's age, I'll tell you what, there's as much or more pressure in some areas during the bow season than the rifle season. And so bow hunters are having to use some of these tactics as well, where they used to be able to just go on out because not many people bow hunted. In Wyoming, we, we kind of, because of the way our, our tags work, we kind of get a little bit, uh, um, you know, we, we kind of get spoiled on that. But in other states, you know, they're offering more and more bow tags in these areas because they get less kill, more people, more money, and it creates more pressure and, and pretty high pressure sometimes during the peak rut, at least for the elk. Oh, I yeah, I've watched it change right around me for sure. And yeah, bow hunting has become so popular. And for elk with those rut seasons, you know, you got a good chance to harvest a good bull and see bulls and get into them. And so, yeah, it's become popular where now as bow hunters, you know, we're having to look at the pressure in these units and adjust for it, you know. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I also like what you say about season specific, like uh you know, whether it's hunting an elk during the rut or post rut, those are two totally different hunts, you know, and, and same thing with the muleys, the early season to the pre rut to the peak rut to the post rut. Those are all four different seasons. And so, yeah, whatever, whatever tag you draw, 
yeah, you have to make a specific game plan for for that hunt and and for the pressure that you're going to have in there, how many tags you have, the time of year, it, all that has to be factored into your hunt plan for the country you're looking at. And so when you're making a hunt plan, you start out broad and you start to find these these little spots that you have interest in and whether that's a a place that's away from pressure and and what I like to do too is I like to get as many factors, you know, uh, working for me that I can. And so, you know, I'm looking for those unpressured areas, the places that are off trails, the places that are away from roads, the, you know, the places that are really tough to get into, like you stated. Early season mule deer, I do really good in low water spots. Guys can, you know, they bring 32 ounces of water to the ridge and they can't live up there for two, three, four days. And I, if I can pack 100 or 150 ounces, I can camp and live and grab these master vantage points and hunt these drainages and basins that nobody else can can live up there and hunt and they also they can't have their horses up there there's no place to water their horses and so um you know i'm trying to get as many factors on my side as i can so i'm looking for unpressured areas and then i'm looking for good mule deer features or good elk features you know i'm looking for a way for trail and as these things start to stack up I, I start to get really interested in an area, you know, and, and then I start to dissect that area, how I'm going to hike in and the different places I'm going to hike to, the master vantage points. And I build a hunt plan all around this area where I could almost spend an entire week in this one area. And I start to develop this this hunt plan or this area and I'll develop multiple of these with inside my unit. And so, you know, I may have five options and those five options, I could hunt each one of those for a week in there. Now, it doesn't always go that way because you have to hunt in real time. So you get into one spot, you don't find what you're looking for, don't turn up the critters, you know, maybe there's more pressure than you thought. And so all of a sudden you're you're faced with a, a decision of whether or not you're going to keep in there and keep exploring or you're going to change to one of the other areas. But that's kind of how I start to build my hunt plans around this unit. Uh, are you similar in that guy where you develop multiple different locations inside that unit that you're really interested in? Yeah, you know, I, I really one thing you hit on that I think is important too. We'll go back to this real quick before we go down that road. Is I think it's important to look in the mirror as a hunter and say, you know what? What are my advantages over Joe Blow Eastman subscriber who's going to be out there hunting in this area? You know, I mean, am I younger than most guys? Can I go further faster? Am I a good glasser? Am I uh, do I have time on my hands? Which that's this is one of the advantages I have, even if, as I get older, is I have a lot of time on my hands because this is kind of my job, so to speak. And so one of my advantages is I hunt during the week and I spend the weekends at home uh, doing other stuff, or you know, so I don't have to hunt with the crowd. So that's a, that can be an advantage too. But I think a lot of guys need to reflect on okay, what's your advantage? What what kind of even down to what kind of country are you most comfortable? hunting what type of country do you do you, are you used to hunting and do you hunt well are you a good sagebrush hunter are you a good high mountain basin hunter and you kind of hit on that with the water is that's one of your advantages even though it sounds really small and people may you know i just want to hit on that that it might have glassed right over people to say you know what that's that little tidbit there can become a huge advantage in that you know how to go into low water areas where there's not much water sparse water and and operate for a week and that makes a huge advantage 
you know, to you uh, as a bow hunter versus uh, the average guy or the guy with horses or, or, you know, the guy who needs a lot of water. I mean, some guys just don't need much water at all to survive. I assume you're probably one of them, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm part sheep, I think. <laughs> uh, guy, that is such a great point. I'm glad you touched on that more because you're right. You have to find your own advantage in a unit. And, and yeah, you have to reflect upon yourself. And you don't want to be scouting a bunch of country that's 10 miles back. You know, if you're not in the shape to get back in there and hunt effectively, you know, we all have our limitations. You know, maybe you're the guy that wants to scout the country that's three to five miles back or, you know, you find your advantage, just like you're saying, maybe it's your fitness, maybe it's your glassing. And like for you, it's your knowledge base. You've been hunting the West and all these different units for all these different species for so many years. And so, you know, you can rely upon your knowledge base to to really dissect a unit and figure out what's important, what's not important, where you're going to see game animals at. And you just made you, you touched on such a great point there, brought it to the attention of our listeners, because you're right. You have to your game plan has to be specific to you and, and so if you got more time on your hands like you do hunting the week um such a game changer isn't it the weekend brings out so many crowds and so many people and, and the week it's almost dead like the pressure's off you can find such good hunting in the week even in more popular areas as as the weekend it just brings so many crowds so i just think that's such a great point you brought up yeah yeah and going back to your uh, your next point is is you know when i I think when I, if I know a unit really well, like I hunted a lot in some of these, you know, areas in Wyoming and, and, and Colorado and stuff, I've hunted a lot and, and I'll hotspot areas. Like you were saying, I'll say, okay, I'm going to check this spot, this spot, this spot, just based on previous knowledge. I kind of know where those animals are going to be, where the spots that I've killed bulls before, bucks or tend to hold bucks. And so I have, you know, I, I don't go in there blind. I have, you know, five to 12 spots and I'm going to check. Now, if I don't know a unit very well, I really concentrate on running loops. I'm a big loop guy. I'm going to run a loop from in here and out there. And I'm going to go in here and come out there because I'm just looking at country and I don't want to look at the same country twice. I want to maximize my time in there. So if I don't know an area very well, I'll do, I'll, you know, plan two or three, four different loops. And sometimes you get to a trailhead or an area and there's just too much pressure and you go on to plan B. But, but I think that that, that really helps me you know, be more effective if I'm covering a lot of country in an area I don't know, whereas an area I do know, I can just really concentrate on on the spots that I know. And then I'll work through those spots, but also have a few I want to check or some new area I want to check out in my back pocket as well, just because I'm always trying to broaden my, my perspective of the area. But, you know, you know how it is. When you really know an area and you get the weather just right, like I, there's an elk area, a couple of elk areas here in Wyoming. I can take you up there any day of the week in September, October. We can find six point bulls. I mean, I just know where they're going to be. They're always there. If they're not here, they're going to be there. And if they're not there, they're going to be over here. I mean, you just, it's just the way it, it works. That's why you hire a guide is because they should know that kind of stuff. Right. But, but if you're a DIY guy, you got to figure it out yourself, but it's not impossible. No. And well, and another thing I like to do is get like a, a, you know, like we started the conversation, a broad overview of the unit. And so you do these scouting and you kind of pick these hot spots. I, I really like the, the loop hunts that you make. That's a good point, too. It's not looking at the same country twice 
always covering new country. But but I also like to get this broad overview of a unit. And so whether I'm scouting a unit or whether I'm starting to hunt a unit, I almost spend a day or two and just kind of cruise the roads and find the trailheads and find the access. And, and I love to walk with my eyes, too. A lot of this country... You know, you can look at from, you know, a mile away, three miles away, and especially if you're hunting elk, like I've glassed elk in my home valley across the valley almost 15, 20 miles away. I've seen elk. Now, you're not judging bulls from that distance, obviously, but you're just seeing numbers and kind of where they're hanging out and the features they like. It really helps to get a feel for the unit, and, and I know for me, it, it's paid off big time like a... Uh, this unit I hunted in Colorado, and um, you know it was 16 hours away from the house, so I couldn't go scout it. So I had to do all e-scouting, and I had never stepped foot or even seen this country in there. So, you know, I showed up a couple days early just to kind of cruise around the unit, and I'll take small hikes to little vantage points that maybe open up country to me that you can't see from a road. And sometimes I'm even off the side of a road or the side of a highway, glassing way up on a mountainside. And I just want to see a few bucks up there or see some elk in a feature, you know, and then that may be a spot that I want to go check out further. But, you know, I showed up in this Colorado unit, had never stepped foot in it. And so I, I cruised around the unit, grabbed different vantage points, and I found some bucks in this spot. But I had, you know, I was really drawn to this giant wilderness. It was the biggest wilderness in the whole unit. So I'd seen some bucks in the spot, but I ended up diving into this wilderness. And I spent two, three days in that wilderness. I just couldn't turn up any bucks. It just wasn't the right country. It wasn't conducive for the the, the bucks just weren't summering in there like they should be. Or maybe they were down lower in the aspens or, you know, I just couldn't turn them up. And so, you know, now I'm five days into my hunt with my scouting or four days into my hunt. But I had seen these bucks in this other area, and so I, I had another option, went straight back to that area, and then I hiked up in there, and it ended up being just epic hunting in there. Now, I didn't see the big bucks while I was scouting. I just saw a handful of bucks on those features, but it led me in there knowing that those bucks liked that country, and then you know a few days later, I was able to arrow a pretty good buck. But just just getting a broad overview of the unit is so important, I feel like. Oh yeah, without without a question, and you know, there's a number of ways to do that. But I I agree with you. And sometimes I get questions from guys on email, and they've never been to such, especially antelope units, never been to this unit. What should I do? I said, well, first thing you should do when you get there is drive around the border, drive as much of that border as you can, and just get a feel for what the country looks like. And you should be able to kind of you know, based on what you see, kind of narrow it down from there. And I like to that's one thing I like to do is travel as much of the border of an unknown unit as possible. And once you do this enough, you just kind of start get to get an idea of, oh, that looks bucky or this looks pretty elk, you know, like elk habitat. You know, you just can kind of look at a piece of country and say, okay, is that better elk habitat, antelope habitat, sheep habitat? deer habitat what you know what does that country look like and so you start to be able to just pick up from long distances what is kind of what's going to be in there and, and you get a good idea of a feel for what type of country you're going to find certain certain animals in and and that can be just a huge advantage from just if you don't have time to scout just to be able to eyeball a, a piece of country and say okay i bet we're going to find elk in there there and there 
Yeah, you're right that there's nothing like that real-time information. Seeing animals in a location right then and there uh, is better than any scouting you could do because bucks like where bucks like and, and bulls like where bulls like. So when you see animals in there uh, and you see them in there when you're going to be hunting, it's just the best information you can have. And, and, and also, like you say, noticing what bucky country is or, or what elky country is, and it just comes with years and with experience in hunting different units – and you can you're you're right like you can describe it to somebody you know the benches the north facing timber the the open pocket parks uh you know that are green meadows the bottoms the water you know all those elements are important but but really even more so than that it's a feel isn't it like you just look at country and you go gosh that's looking like good country there's got to be critters in there you know and i start getting excited um just by looking at the country and looking at the features and it doesn't matter if it's nevada or arizona or montana or wyoming like you just start to get a feel for what good country looks like and what good country you want to check out by seeing it with your own two eyes Exactly. And, and, and part, I'd explain this to somebody I was hunting with one time. I said, you know what? We were on a hunt and it was just wasn't panning out. And I said, part of the art to the hunt sometimes is knowing when to pull the plug on the drain and go reset and start over somewhere else. And I think guys, especially this day and age with social media and everything, get so hung up on hardcore, hardcore. Well, guess what? Hardcore doesn't mean sitting on the ridge for eight, day, eight days of your total hunt where there's no elk or no deer just because you're stubborn about it or because you got some some piece of uh, bad information from somebody on Facebook that there could be a big buck there. I mean, you know, you need to know when to pull the plug. And it, that was a great example you gave where you got back in that wilderness. You just look around. You're just not feeling it. You're just not feeling that this is going to happen. My dad used to call it getting in the rhythm of the hunt. People didn't really understand sometimes what he meant, but that's kind of what he meant where you're in going on. The hunt is progressing and you're like, okay, things are happening. We're seeing bucks. We're in bulls every day or whatever the case is. This is just a matter of time. Things are going in the right direction. Now we're just playing the time game. Eventually that bull or buck's going to make a mistake and we're going to have the advantage and capitalize on it. Or is this going the other way where it's just getting worse and worse every day and you're stuck in lightning storms on top of ridges with, with uh, no wildlife in there. And when do you pull the plug and go regroup or start over or go uh, on to plan B? Oh, that's so true, guy. Uh, we're taught to never quit, never give up, never give in. You have to know when to quit. <laughs> you have to know yeah. when to move areas. You're right. You, you, and I never do good waiting on animals. Now, maybe on a migration hunt or a rut hunt or something like that, the animals are going to show up. But even, even, you know, even in those seasons, I do better going and finding where the animals are at rather than waiting for them. I just never do good waiting around for these critters to show up. And yeah, you, you have to know when to quit. When you're up there and not seeing what you need, you have to adapt to what the conditions are giving you. And you have to be into critters if you're going to kill critters. And so, yeah, you have to be willing to quit and willing to go, you know, and whether that's regroup, go into a fresh area, go into a new area. And sometimes, like you living in Wyoming, me living here in Montana, 
sometimes those weekends or those couple days off are so beneficial. So maybe you strike out and it doesn't go the way you want. You quit, you go home, and then you think about it for a couple days. You kind of come up with some fresh ideas, and, and then you go back with renewed vigor on Monday or a couple days later and go dive into the next spot. Or, or even you know, if you're on a backcountry hunt where you only have seven days to get it done or ten days to get it done – you have to know when to pull the plug and get out of an area and move to a fresh area. And you just need to find that area where those critters are hanging. You need to find that quality hunting. And just like you said, then it's just a matter of time. When you're in them, then it's just a matter of time be- before you harvest one. But, yeah, that the, the legends, you know, I always hear people call them timber bucks. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Once those bucks move to secondary living, they really hold the timber you know they come out and shoots and slides they're they're tough to to locate and, and and tough to find but you know for me mule deer are mule deer and and a giant buck there's no giant buck that just lives in the timber and never shows himself you know there's no bull that doesn't hang with the cows and rut now those bulls will leave the cows and go off on their own so you know they will break the rules but in that same breath i just trust you know i trust my knowledge in country and i trust my glass uh, to show me what's living in there, you know, when I get to the best vantage points at the right time. And so if I'm not seeing it, I don't believe there's a mythical beast that's walking around that I'm going to find on the 10th day. You got to know when to quit. <laughs> yeah. Quit or start over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it, it can be tough to do, especially when you, you feel so vested in it. You've done so much research and you just get stubborn about an area and, and uh, you know, knowing that you should should quit but you're too stubborn to do it and it works the other way too i i i talked to a lot of guys i've done it myself quit too early when you should have stayed you know and so it, it's kind of a like i said part of the art to the hunt is knowing when to pull the plug on the drain because it's a it's a fine line there you know are you leaving too early or are you staying too late it is a fine line, isn't it? It's uh, <laughs> that's a that's a tough one, yeah. Um, but but again, it it just comes down to to feel and and it comes down to adapting to the conditions that you're given. You know, what are you seeing in real time? And and there's just no better information than than real time information. What you're seeing there and the deer you're seeing, you know, or the elk you're seeing, or whatever the case. Yeah, I have a friend that always says the best, the only scouting report he believes is the one he sees with his own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Well, and a lot of times, you know, like I know uh, spring bear hunting, um, yesterday's information does you no good on the current day. You know, those bears, they move around so much, and, and you can find a hot drainage that will turn up bears day after day. But um, I want most recent information, and, and I, I'm not going to go to a spot where I saw a bunch of bears yesterday just because I saw a bunch yesterday because there's no guarantee you're going to see that you know that that next day either and so yeah i love that that real-time information what you're seeing with your own two eyes yeah exactly yeah yeah, bears are tough that's yeah it's they're really really even this morning's information is too old for this afternoon's hunt i mean that's a (laughs) <laughs> it's probably a good exercise for for a lot of us just to go bear hunting it, it, just to live in that world for for a while just to to kind of get used to it because because it's it's the opposite end of that spectrum for sure yes 
So, so once you get on a hunt, you've got a good feel for it. You've got target units, and so now you're looking. You kind of set a goal at the beginning of the season when you draw a tag. You kind of look at it and set a goal. You know of what type of animal you want to harvest, whether that's a mature six point or a big six point, uh, whether it's a mature four point buck or you know you're looking for a hundred and eighty inch deer or whatever the case is. And so um, when you're looking for a big buck. Um, you get into a place and you start seeing some deer. Are are you looking for the the needle in the haystack, or are you looking for a needle amongst needles? Are you looking for a, a lot of bucks being around, and then it's just a matter of time before you turn up a big one? Or are you looking at remote country, looking for that one exception to the rule, the one buck that that lives and is able to grow up to six, seven, eight years old, or a combination of both? You know. <laughs> You're really digging digging deep on some of these questions there, Brian. Uh, my thought on that has changed as I've gotten older. When I was younger, I just wanted to see lots of bucks, and that's what it was all about, and that was really cool. If I saw 50 bucks in a day and none of them were shooting, I didn't care. That was I was having a great time. And it's still good to see that. You know, th this day and age, I'm older, but in my experience, tells me that with deer you're not looking for a needle amongst needles. You're looking for a needle in the haystack. And it seems like those older, bigger bucks do not hang out with large amounts of young, young bucks. I, I just, and I, we get very few stories to the magazine as well, where a guy will shoot the biggest buck out of a group of 20 in a basin. And it was a giant it, it, it over and over. It's, this basin was full of young bucks, and we looked, and there was nothing over 170, and we watched it for five days, and then we finally got frustrated, and or we had to go get water, and so we went around to the other side, and there was three bucks, and they were all really good bucks with one giant, you know, amongst them. I, I just, it seems like on those early season hunts, and in October, you know, when the rut comes around, then it's different. But those September and October hunts, I just think those older bucks, not always, I mean, this is, there's always exceptions to the rule, of course, but it seems like those older bucks just get solitary, and I don't think they like to be around all those young bucks that are hanging out in the basin too long in the morning, coming out too early in the afternoon, needing water twice a day, can't get, you know, don't have, can't find the good bed, so they get up and down like, you know, bouncing up and down like like kids in church when they're supposed to be laying down and being still. They just don't like all that activity that the younger bucks bring. And so I think they just kind of split off. And I think another part of that is those older bucks know the best habitat. And usually the best habitat is not in mass. It's not conducive to having 20 bucks living in it. It's conducive for two or three bucks to live in it. And so they'll split off, go to that really juicy piece of country where it's more solitary. They're with older bucks that know the game. They know the routine. They know the plan. When the sun comes up, you lay down, you move every two hours to take a piss, get back in the shade, adjust so you're always in the shade, and that's your day not jumping around, coming out, feeding at one in the afternoon, doing all the kind of horse shit stuff that young bucks do. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's, uh, this conversation, when you start talking about it and where these older bucks come from, 
Um, it, it just reminds me of where I find older bucks too. And I find that same thing. I find it and I find it, you know, you talk about the rut can bring, bring the big bucks up and it's definitely their Achilles heel and they make mistakes. But, you know, like I hunt high pressure areas for the rut and I find like even those older deer there, they find those does that are put away from the road in those secluded basins. And, and that's where they rut in these secluded basins year after year. And that's how they grow up to be five, six, seven years old because because guys aren't hiking in there to find them and to see them. And, man, I think you are absolutely spot on. You're you're on to something there, guy. Like, those, they don't want to hang with 20 different deer. Like, I've hunted the uh, the rubies in, in Nevada in there. And, and that mountain range, it's a really cool mountain range. And it, it the, the bucks are like rabbits in there. You see hundreds of, there's a lot of bucks in there. But... I start cruising country and I'm, I'll, I'll get in a drainage and all of a sudden, you know, just like you were saying, I'll pick out 20, 25 different bucks and they're all four years old or younger. Now I'm seeing some decent three and four points, but I can't find a buck that'll go 170 inches. And I traveled country, and I looked over hundreds of bucks. Like, I looked in all these different drainages, and all of them are just threes and fours. It almost makes you start to believe, like, oh, this this unit doesn't have big bucks. This unit doesn't grow that older age class deer. It's too much high pressure. But as you keep traveling around and you keep finding, and where I, I eventually found the bucks is diving off the main ridge and getting down these spur ridges, like a mile down these spur ridges where guys aren't willing to go hike down in or it, it's not easy or exciting accessible and you hike down in there and then looking into the aspens and a little bit more cover and down off the main ridge where there isn't as much traffic all of a sudden i started to find these older age class bucks and it wasn't just one of them you know it was a handful of bucks that were going over 170 over 180 you know almost 10 or 12 of them hanging in these ridge lines and down in these areas and so like it I think a big part of it is unlocking that country that holds those older age class animals and really looking for that country that's really remote or rugged or, you know, that isn't easy to glass or more cover. And you get down into these areas and all of a sudden you start turning up those five, six, seven year old buck. You know, I turned up a buck in there that was close to 200 inches, you know, in a in a high pressure unit. So you're spot on, guy. It is looking for those pieces of country that's remote where those animals can grow up. And the same thing for elk, too. You know, the, those elk, you know, they, they don't end up at, at the end of a trailhead, a mile off the trailhead. And that's where the biggest bull is rutting all his cows. They're they're in these drainages, these remote basins where they rut these cows every single year where they don't get pressured. They don't get bugled at. They don't get bumped. Elk like to be where they don't get pressured. And so, you know, that that's where you find those bigger bulls, I feel. It's such a great point, guy. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the reason I came to that conclusion, I've been hunting in the high country you know, most of my life. And those big high country deer, you can watch them. Mostly because the country's so rough that you can, you know how it is. You watch deer, you can't stalk, you know, or, or it will take you two days to get to them. But you can watch them for days on end and really get a good idea of their behaviors. And I've seen those big bucks kind of get caught out in the open sometimes. I don't, you know, it seems like cloudy mornings kind of cause that, where the sun doesn't come up real harsh. And those bucks will be out there. Sometimes there's a big buck out with some younger bucks, and and all of a sudden that sun peeks through the clouds, and they're like, oh, we got to, you know, you can just almost see the panic on their face, and they dodge into the into the timber or the junipers as quick as they can and bed down. And then you know that old buck got caught out there, kind of with his pants down with those young guys, and then 
about halfway through the day, them bouncing up and down and some of them coming out in the middle of the day feeding, he'll just get up, gather stuff up, pack up, walk, right, you know, watch him go up and right over the top of the basin and to the other side and never be seen again. And I think a lot of guys have witnessed that and don't really understand what they're seeing. And that buck is leaving. He ain't coming back because he kind of got caught out. You know, the nights are, are pretty short in September, but they're long enough where a buck can get feet, you know, get moving along and feeding and just kind of grazing and feeding and find himself out in a big basin with some, with uh, some younger bucks, but he doesn't want to stay there. And he leaves and goes to where he's more comfortable. And an, an unexperienced hunter will sit there for the rest of his hunt, waiting for that buck to come back. He's not coming back. Oh, you're, you're spot on. Yeah. He was out there one more and found himself out there with his pants down. And then he is out of there, right? He wants to yeah, find a remote piece of country, you know, where he can just come out into a, a little slide or a little shoot and be right back into the cover, you know, within seconds and, and not be seen. But yeah, that's what those bucks search out is that country that's really tough to glass, the country that's really tough to hunt, the country that lays out to you that's really easy to glass. It's got a trailhead through it. A trail up on the ridge that country just doesn't hold big bucks they're not able to grow up in there they get four or five years old and they get shot yeah and those young bucks will t they'll tolerate quite a bit of human pressure even hunting pressure and won't won't they're no they don't have enough experience to change up their routine <laughs> most of them get killed where an older buck he's out of there he's dd mal goodbye see you later not coming back you know when he f senses that hunting pressure he's going to his alternative living one of his alternative living areas and he's not going to come back i think too many guys get hung up and that's where guys get hung up because they're seeing those small bucks and they're just going to wait there the whole rest of their five-day hunt waiting for that big buck to turn up again and he's gone not coming back oh you're absolutely right you got to keep searching country grabbing different vantage points and looking for that real remote rugged country and again looking for your advantage you know <laughs> Uh, what is your advantage, whether it's uh, hunting those ridgelines without water, you know, and, and just like in that Nevada, just diving down, like um, especially as we get into the early rifle seasons and we get into that October hunting, you know, those bucks move out of those alpine basins. And I, it seems like they're moving out of those alpine basins earlier and earlier just because of the bow hunting pressure. I actually find myself hunting secondary ridges uh during the bow season as early as september 5th some years it's september 10th you know it it kind of depends on when the food burns off up high when they start scraping their velvet but when those bucks start moving down into that secondary living in through there you know they're they're still in rough rugged country it's still cliffy and it's and it just smaller opening shoots and slides and so it's so important that time of year to to dive off that main ridge get out of those alpine basins get a thousand feet down and find those vantage points that are showing you a lot of pocket parks and little slides and things and watching there and seeing what you can turn up and um you know, giving it a couple sessions, uh, depending on how the country looks, and then it's time to move on to the next piece of rugged country that you can find that's down there. But it's so important to dive out of those alpine basins, especially as those deer start moving to their secondary living. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point. I think a lot of these high country bucks are changing their behavior over the years. It seems like they're scraping their velvet earlier than ever before, and they're moving off those basins earlier than they ever used to you know i think it's the hunting pressure and the and the scouting pressure you know for the early rifle seasons they're just 
I think, well, what is it, August 6th today? So, you know, they're they're going to start moving off, at least here in western Wyoming. I think, you know, they're start moving off those basins the, toward the end of August, first few days of September, you know, and they didn't used to do it, move off them until the middle of September. But, you know, they learn, you know, creatures of, of habit. And you know, back when I was a kid, the season opened the 10th for rifle instead of the 15th of September, and nobody was up there before the season opener. No one did scouting, or darn sure nobody bow hunted, so those bucks would stay up there until they got pushed off by gunshots, but that's not, not today's world. Yeah, well, and I've even found it too. Um, well, you know, a pressured animal is way different than an unpressured animal. You know, they just yep. have different habits and different behaviors. So, like, I've hunted that Wasatch Front in Utah, and there's a lot of bow hunters in Utah, and they all look forward to that early bow season for for high country muleys. And uh, they open uh, August 15th in Utah. So you'd think it'd be great dates to catch those deer in their, their alpine behavior, uh, that lax alpine attitude up there. But those deer know it's hunting season. You can scout them late July, early August. By the time August 15th rolls around, these bucks are going to their secondary living. And some of them still with red coats on and full velvet. But they're going to that secondary living because they're feeling the pressure. And so, you know, there's no bucks in those alpine basins up there or maybe just young bucks but those bigger older age class animals they drop down august 15th and and you know in this spot that i hunted i saw bow hunters every single day and the bucket that i ended up killing i saw twice in seven days like he just would not show himself he just ran a tight program so i i find these high pressured deer too act way different than a than an unpressured deer so yeah that it definitely plays a, a huge factor in the behavior of these animals as well I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, one thing I'm really, when I'm out there in the field, you know, doing my, my glassing, searching, stalking, all the above, I'm very, very adamant and probably overly cautious in, to some degree about not being detected. I, I think that really oh, half of the hunt is finding the animal, if you're trophy hunting, finding the big buck or bull or ram or whatever, that's 50% of the hunt. Once you pierce that 50%, you've got your target found. Then you're in the second half of the hunt. And in that 50%, if he doesn't know you're there, your odds are, are you have the advantage. It's probably 70-30, your advantage. If he knows you're there, flip-flops you're 70, 30 the other way, his advantage. And so I'm really, really particular about wind, uh, line of sight, um, camp, where I camp, noise. Um, I'm always overly, overly cautious to make sure I keep my advantage. As long as he doesn't know I'm there, I have the advantage. I just always tell myself that. And, and it keeps me from going out on a limb and too risky of a stock or pushing the envelope and, and turning the tables on myself. And I think I, when I was younger, I used to constantly find myself turning those tables on myself. And I was always behind the eight ball searching for a buck that I bumped. And, you know, the chances of finding him was 20%. I mean, the once I bumped the buck, it seemed like I could turn him up about two out of every 10 and that, you know, hunting as hard as I could. So, you know, I just try to try to really keep, keep that in mind when I'm, I'm in their bedroom or in 
close enough to where they can detect me either through sight, sound, or smell. I'm overly cautious and overly patient, even to where, you know, cameramen are wanting to quit on me and, you know, people are, you know, if I'm with friends or whatever, they're just really, really getting impatient, even with a rifle. Um, boy, I really like that thought process. Yeah, I, I haven't touched on that a whole bunch, but that low impact hunting is so important. I love your 70-30 rule and how it flip-flops when that buck knows you're there. It is so important to be low impact. Voices travel so much, so I, I'm a noise Nazi as well when I'm in the woods. Like, I do not, like, there's no reason to ever talk beyond a whisper. And if anybody does, I'm instantly jumping on them like, hey, quiet down. They're going to know we're here. Like voices just carry through country in the moment you let that buck know that you're there. Like you say, his habits and behavior totally change. I'm with you there. And all those points you made, you know, where you camp, where your wind's drifting in. And I try never to camp like where I'm hunting. I always want to camp back over the ridge and some thick cover. Um, you know, that way I, I'm not, my scent isn't drifting down into that basin at night, letting that buck I know, know I'm there. And like you say, the voices is huge. You got to be quiet uh, all the time in the woods. The voices just carry so far. So, you know, it's a quiet whisper at all times, you know, and and, and also, um, you know, like as it gets late in the season, you have to have a fire. And I don't know how much a fire really affects animals in there, but I'm as paranoid as you to where, you know, I don't want to light a fire where I'm going to have smoke roll into that basin and give that that animal an idea that there's humans in their hunt because that smoke has to smell a little bit different when it's in their basin or really close to them than when it's afar drifting from, like, say, a forest fire or something like that. So I, I'm with you. That low-impact hunting is so important in all the country you hunt. And for me, it's a failure. If I, I hate spooking deer, even if it isn't my target buck. I I hate jumping deer. I hate I, I just hate letting them know I'm there. You know, I, I want to go as low impact as I can. So I'm with you. Like when I'm going over a ridgeline, I, I try to never skyline myself. I'll crawl over a ridgeline to get over to the top to then glass in that drainage so I'm not seen. When I'm hiking up, I try not to hike on the main ridgeline. I'll hike just off of it so so I'm not skylined up. But that low impact hunting is so important with a bow and with a rifle. Like you say, that element of surprise, it just shifts the odds so far in your favor yeah i i that's one thing i've you know kind of used you know later in life here to my advantage i think and also you know planning the stock when i'm planning the stock i'm really cautious to make sure i get close enough but not too close and when i hunt down in colorado we take the hunt winners down there as everybody knows and we hunt elk down there, and it's in the peak of the rut, so it's a lot of fun. And, and what happens is those guys down there, they do a lot of bow hunting, and I constantly have to get on them about getting too close with the rifle because usually the hunt winners hunt with a rifle. And I keep telling you know, – I'm constantly saying we don't need to get 30 yards from these bulls. We're hunting with a gun, and bad things happen at 30 yards with a rifle. They're noisy. It's – you know, the guys can't get a shell into the chamber quietly. It's not a bow. And once you get in too close, it's – you're just opening yourself up for disaster. So even with a rifle, I'm planning a stock. I want to get 500 yards from the animal and then regroup reassess and enclose that last hundred or 200 yards very, very carefully. Um, but you know, I don't run right up to 
250 yards from them, and I darn sure don't get under 100 yards from them if I can help it uh, with a rifle. Now, with a bow, it's a little different, but, you know, even even with a bow, I don't think you want to stalk right into the 30-yard mark. I think you want to get 100 yards, 150 yards, reassess your situation, and really plan that second, that final phase of your stalk from that vantage point because things never quite look the same once you get over there. Another thing I do is when I find an animal, I'm going to stock up, whether it's bow or rifle, I sit and watch him for a little while, but not only am I watching him, I may have my spotting scope on him, but I'm also looking at my stalking route to make sure there's not other elk or some deer or anything in between that I can see that's going to, I'm going to bump on my way there. I mean, you don't always know, but it's always a good thing to really try to try to mitigate that because that is a real that's where i've really gotten hammered before too is you get 80 percent 75 percent of the way there and you bump another buck you didn't know was there and sure enough he runs right through the basin or right over to the other bucks man yeah um that is so true is planning a methodical planned out stock so many times i i see guys with a rifle you know they they feel like they almost like they have the power of God in their hands. The rifle can reach out. They've got an extended range. All they need to do is get behind the scope and kill that animal. And I see guys like trying to rush to get set up to shoot where they're almost running on a ridgeline or making themselves seen. Like um, the element of surprise, it, it, you still want it in your favor there. So even when you see a big buck with your rifle, I freeze like I'm bow hunting. You know, I freeze. I don't want to let that animal know I'm there. I want to try to move slowly and get into position with my rifle and never let that buck know that I'm in the area. And you make a good point about getting too close, too. Um, these planned out methodical stocks, you, you need to plan them so you can get to a place where then you can see that buck again. And and I like what you said, like uh, relocating that buck. And the same applies with the bow, just like you said, whether it's 500 yards with a rifle or 100 yards with a bow or a couple hundred yards with a bow. I almost make my stock, and I almost want to get to a point where I can relocate that buck or bull, see him still there, and then plan the final approach of my stock there. And and same thing goes with a bow. I don't want to get too close. I don't want to beat a 15, 20 yards of a mule deer because you know what? He's going to end up picking me up nine times out of ten and blowing out of there. Like I, I'm better off. I work on my shooting all year long, so I'm better off to get like at 40 yards where I know 100% I can make that shot and then let the scenario develop and let that buck offer me a shot i don't stalk to failure i don't want to keep stalking into 20 yards until i blow that buck and he hops away from me and i never get a chance at him and and so when i'm planning my stock i also need to be able to see this deer or see this animal like i i just got done um I was just hunting in Hawaii with some buddies out there, and we were hunting for some mouflon out there, and I spotted this ram, and this ram was bedded below a cliff. And, and so you know, your first thought is to work all the way around and come up over the cliff and shoot down on him, but he was tucked in so far under this overhang that I knew if I get above that cliff, I'm not going to be able to see him or get a shot or even know that he's there. And so I chose to hunt like the opposing side of the drainage and slip down on my butt with my bow on my lap, and that way I could keep an eye on the U and on the ram 
where they were at. I could keep an eye on their head, which way they were looking, if they were alert or not. And I just kept slipping down, but I could – I planned this stock so I could see them and so I could eventually get a shot. And eventually I worked down the canyon. It was such a tight canyon that I ended up being 50 yards away from this ram waiting for the perfect shot and putting an arrow in them. But it was all because of the my planned stock and also on the other side of the drainage – you know, that, that wind is traveling through that drainage, so there was just no chance of that wind drifting over to that ram. And so, you know, the the success of that hunt was the plan of that stock. You're right. You're 75% there. You've located that animal. He doesn't know you're there. The last the last piece, the last part of it is planning that stock. And you just um, – you can't be hasty, you know, and, and it has to be a planned stock. And I know you're really patient and really methodical and when you plan a stock you are making sure you're not going to bust that buck or let them know you're there and just from from hearing stories and hearing you talk like um i heard ike tell a story about a, a rutting mule deer last year that you couldn't get the shot and you backed out and then you ended up finding them in the morning and shooting them but having that patience and just knowing that you don't want to blow that animal out um you know it's such a such a a, a key factor to killing that buck you know it's just planning that stock so that last 25 percent is really important yeah exactly and i mean to your point the, the deer ike was talking about that was in nebraska it was a rut hunt with a rifle and, and we were all set up and the storm was blowing in and and that buck was rutting hard and he was the closest he came to us was 480 yards and it was blowing wind and i didn't want to to make that shot. I was all set up. I'm comfortable. I could shoot that far probably, but I didn't want to have, you know, a wounded animal or a wind drift. I wasn't comfortable. So I knew the buck wasn't going anywhere. Cause again, he never, he never saw us. He didn't know we were there. I knew we had the advantage. We pulled out, came back the next morning. He was, hadn't moved very far, still had a hot doe. And we snuck up and ended up shooting him at 180 yards, you know? So, so that paid, paid off. You know, it was, it was more of an experience and, you know, a little feather in our hat for, for a little reward for our patients, but it made for better video, made for a better stock and a better adventure and, a, you know, a better story, 180 yards versus, you know, making a, a, a marginal shot at 450 yards, you know, in a, in a snowstorm. So, you know, it just, it just, uh, just goes to show that sometimes patience, uh, patience kills. <laughs> and, and I always say same thing when we hunt in Colorado for these, for elk hunt down there, it's the same way. It's like you hunt in the morning to kill in the afternoon. I mean, we go in the morning to usually find a bull, bed them down, do our stock in the midday when everything's bedded down. It's not on alert, you know, it's amazing. These animals will let you get away with a little bit more when they're bedded down and think they're hidden. If they hear something and you're real quiet, you know, they're not going to necessarily blow out. They're not on alert when, like when they're up feeding. And so, you know, you find a big buck or a bull in the morning, bed them down, do your stock kind of in the midday, be careful and quiet, and then get to that 500 yard range with a rifle or you know five six hundred yards if you're with a bow you know a couple hundred yards and then sit and wait them out wait till the evening you know till you find them or, or get a look at them or whatever and then then uh, make the kill in the in the evening and that's a for me that's been a really really effective recipe yeah i do that that same thing and i love what you say uh patience kills like i think we have 
a motto starting on the podcast and because I always say patience kills the buck and that's you know and it, it applies to so many different facets uh, of bow hunting mule deer or even rifle hunting mule deer whatever the case but yeah patience kills and so I had this regurgitated to me and, and brought up to me about the podcast constantly like probably a hundred times I'll get you know a direct message or something and it'll be a picture of a giant buck somebody harvested with a bow and then they just say it back to me patience kills the buck you know and they talk about having patience in the situation and and and, and how it helped them harvest that buck and so yeah I think if there's one takeaway patience kills uh it's so true but um man thanks a bunch for jumping on with me guy I I always really enjoy our conversations I can't see uh, can't wait to see what you turn up this season all right well thanks uh for having me on brian it's always always a good time and uh maybe we can do it again at some point maybe after the fall and i'll tell you about all my <laughs> misadventures from the fall <laughs> yeah it sounds like a plan yeah i'm gonna take you up on that so thanks again guy we'll talk okay. soon yep see you later okay bye all right guys that's a wrap uh fun conversation with guy uh, i really like hanging out with him he's just has He's so tapped into the to the Western hunting and has been his whole life. And so, you know, he has so much knowledge floating around in there. And so I, I'm always trying to get information out uh, for myself, but also, you know, through the podcast to you guys. Uh, guy just finds a way to be successful year after year on trophy critters. And so I uh, can't wait to see what he turns up this year. And, and uh, I, I'm really happy at the way that podcast turned out. I just think there's some some great information in there. So thanks to Guy for taking the time. Um, I want to thank our sponsor for today's show, Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, again, just a great store that has absolutely everything you need. They keep all the top brands. Uh, they keep a great staff in every department. And uh, again, you just go in there and look through it, try it on, feel it, and uh, see exactly what you want to get and uh, get it from there. So uh, I want to thank those guys again for sponsoring the podcast. And uh, make sure to give them some love if you need anything this hunting season. And with that, um, yeah, just trying to get caught up here on the podcast, a little work and some family. Um, it's been an absolutely awesome season. Um, you just never know how it's going to play out. and <laughs> you got to roll with the punches. You never know what your challenges are going to be. Uh, I, I just love this this backcountry bow hunting so much. I just um, really enjoy my time in the field, trying really hard to enjoy the process, enjoy the mountains, enjoy being sore and tired and pounding out miles in the dark with my headlamp or uh, heavy pack outs and and uh, you know I'm I'm really trying to get the most out of this season you know which is helping family and friends be more successful I mean to help people around me and see their joy you know that really means a lot to me and then you know trying to find a little success myself that that bow hunting critters on public land is so difficult oh my gosh those those animals their instincts are just incredible whether it's you know, deer trying to beat a big muley buck and his buddies, or whether it's elk trying to beat the whole elk herd, all the cows, all the eyes in that big bull. It's just, um, it's, it's the most challenging thing out there. And, um, you know, definitely the, the more you prepare, the, the, the more you prepare yourself mentally and physically, the more success you're going to have. But, um, you know, there are no guarantees in this game and, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I, I will share my season with you. I'm going to put out that podcast, the highs and lows of mule deer season. Uh, been hunting elk now. I'm uh, going to get some work done, but I'll be back out this evening and uh, just try to do what I can do. 
Um, but I'm, I'm having an absolute blast and I hope you guys are too. I sure enjoy, um, all the support you guys give to the podcast, the post about it, uh, enjoy the personal messages and successful harvest photos. Um, I know I've taken a break from Instagram. Uh, I think I've taken about a month off. I've got to get back after it or <laughs> easement is going to fire me, but it's been a really good break. It's been really healthy. I'm still catching some of your guys's trophies here and there. Um, but, but yeah, it's just, um, focused on, on the mountains and hunting hard and, um, focused on, on the right now, the reality. And it's, it's been just great for me. So I am going to get back on, uh, you know, luckily I had some podcasts recorded. I was sitting on, so able to release those while I was gone. It's so nice just to focus all your energy on hunting or all my energy on hunting. And uh, I'm just so fortunate for the time I get and, um, being able to, to, to live where I live and, and, uh, you know, I just, I feel so fortunate family and, and the friends I had the whole deal, man. I mean, um, it, you know, definitely hunting season gives you, um, some perspective on your life and, and where you're at and what you have and what you hold important. And, um, it's definitely done that. Uh, but yeah, had an absolute blast. So I'm just going to keep after it. It's, um, fall comes and goes pretty quick. I'm going to try to continue to make the most out of it and just put my full effort into everything I do. So, um, thanks a bunch guys. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll check in with you next week. I'll get that solo podcast put together too. It's just a bunch of work. I got like 30 some clips. It's going to be a long one, just a fair warning. Um, and, and it's just going to be different five to 10 minute clips about what happened on the day, but it's really cool because it captures like the real emotion. You guys get to see me frustrated. You guys get to see me when I fail. You guys get to see me, you know, when I'm excited or when I locate an animal, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just really fun to enjoy that in real time. So, um, I need to do more of these. We'll see how this one does. Uh, it's really long, might have to do it in two parts, um, we'll just see if you guys like it or not. Um, you know, maybe I should be recording all this in, in, in my office, you know, on a solo podcast, but I just wanted to try this out. I've had this idea. So let's see how it all comes out. I'm going to edit, edit it together, get it out to you guys. And, um, yeah, with that, keep hunting hard. Fall comes and goes quick. And, um, I'll check in with you guys next week.